Well, good morning, everyone. I want to thank you, Tim. Um, thank you, Jan, worship team, uh, for the songs this morning. I'm pretty sure I would have been okay just ending the service there uh, with that worship set. Um, would have let me off the hook, too, this morning if you all decided that that would be a good way to, to close today. But um, no, just really thankful to be here this morning. Uh, this is a bit of a leap for me. I'm used to sitting back in the back of the church on the back row back there. A lot of good people in the back row back there, so shout out to them. Keep the bench warm for me back there. Um, before I launch into the things this morning, I wanted to, you guys to know a few things about me. Um, first thing is that I'm thankful for you, for this congregation. Uh, as Tim mentioned, my wife, Suzanne, and three children. We've been going here for about a year and a half. And um, this community uh, has been very instrumental in our lives. Um, we came from a stormy season of life and a very disorienting uh, transition um, from that season. And we really needed a shelter. We needed a place just to hang out and to be uh, and to heal from some of the stuff that we went through. And this community has been that for us. Um, and it's, it's been a great place for our kids, too. And I'm thankful for that. I'm always interested in what the impressions that my kids have as they come to a new community, a new church. And um, the other day, my youngest, Ezra, who's in kindergarten, asked me a question. And you have to know this about Ezra, that he's a huge Star Wars fan. Um, but he's more drawn to the stormtroopers than he is to the Jedi Knights. So if that means anything to you. So he's, he's very interested in understanding the dark side. So he has this question, right? And he says, uh, Daddy, what would happen if everybody on earth died? They're all gone. There's nobody left. And I'm like, okay. Going to Bible college, but I, I wasn't prepared for that question, because that's an interesting question. What would happen if everyone was gone? I'm sitting there pondering, and he says, Daddy, don't worry. He says, uh, you can look it up. <laughs> or you can ask Pastor Tim. So pretty sure Google and Pastor Tim are on the same plane in his mind. By the way, I'd like you to try to answer that for Ezra someday there, Tim. So. Secondly, you should know about me, I don't know as much as I once did. No, I haven't had experienced amnesia, but uh, Mark Twain once said, the problem ain't what you know that gets you in trouble, it's what you know that ain't so. So some of the things that... Um, I would have gone to the stake for when I was in my late teens, early 20s. I'm not quite as certain of those things that were so important to me then. So what you get this morning is a person um, on an imperfect journey working towards a better understanding of God. That's what you get this morning. Who's continually coming to terms with my own brokenness, my sinfulness, and my character defects. And I think this is the place where I belong, right? Because Jesus said, he said, I didn't come for the people who are well. I came for the sick who know they need a physician. And so the longer I've walked in life, the more I'm pretty sure that I need someone like Jesus to do surgery on this human heart. And that's why coming to this place has been a place where I've been able to experience that. And I'm thankful for those, everyone, that makes this community what it is. Um, and I'm hoping this morning, if you find yourself in that camp, 
where you know that you need someone to do surgery on your human heart, that this is a safe place for you to come to hang out and to work through those things. Lastly, having said that, I'm enamored with Jesus. I think there's more to his life and the stories we have of him, his mysterious presence among us, than I ever imagined. So although I've had a hard drive full of doubts in my life, and I've had to work through all of those, and many of you have struggled with those too, I am in wonder of Jesus, and I find myself wanting to know him better and to trust him more. So having said that, I want to focus on a story of Jesus. Um, The worship team did a great job of leading us in um, to his presence and thinking about him this morning. And I want to tell you a story out of Mark chapter 2. And this is kind of my paraphrase of that story. Um, As I've thought about it this week, um, this is the story that comes out of Mark chapter 2. It's also in Luke chapter 5. But Jesus had come home to Capernaum, and word got out that he was coming home, and everyone started to flock towards the home where he was at. And the crowd got so big that the home that he was in was packed to the gills. It was so full that the crowd started to spill out onto the street, and the healing power of God was upon him, and he began to teach. And as he was teaching, there were four friends who brought their friend, who was a paraplegic, on a stretcher. They got to the house, and they realized there was no way they were going to be able to get their friend into Jesus so that he could meet them. And so they devised the plan. They took their friend on the stretcher. They took him up to the roof, and they began to unroof the roof. They began to slide the, whatever it was, I don't know what it was made of, a lot of people say straw, dirt, clay, they began to break a hole into this home. And they lowered their friend on the stretcher through the roof down in front of Jesus. Jesus was impressed by their faith. And when he was lowered to the ground, Jesus, I imagine him kneeling beside this man, and he said, my son, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders uh, and the Pharisees that were there in that group um, were shocked and upset. And they said, they said, you know, to each other, who does he think he is? Isn't that blasphemous for him to assume that he can forgive the sins of this man? And Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And so he looked at them and he spoke to the crowd. And he said, what would be simpler for me to say? My son, get up, walk out of here, or your sins are forgiven. But just so you know that I'm the son of man and I can do either or both, looking at the man, he said, my son, get up, rise up, pick up your mat and go home. Everyone in the crowd was absolutely shocked. They rubbed their eyes trying to figure out what they had just seen. The man walked out of there, and people said, we have never seen anything like this. Story out of Mark chapter 2. Gridlocked. In this opening scene, everything is gridlocked. The entrance to where Jesus is teaching is packed, 
and it's impassable. No one is moving. When was the last time you experienced gridlock? Think about that in your life. For me, the time where I experienced gridlock was last year when I decided to go down to Broad Street to see the Eagles parade. Uh, it was very out of character for me. I don't like crowds at all. But I decided this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and that Eagles fever was contagious, right? So my brother lives down in the city. I went down, stayed with him overnight, and um, got up the next morning. I had a friend over by the art museum, which if you know anything about the parade, that's where everything was going to happen. That was where it was going to go down. That's where the speeches are going to be and everything like that. My friend said to me, he said, he said, Seth, I have a spot for you. It's about six by six inches, right? Right by this certain spot, by this flag. He said, if you can get there, you can have it. So I started making my way there early in the morning, and I got, as I got within a couple hundred yards of the art museum, it became absolutely gridlocked, where I could not go forward, and I turned around, and I could not go back. And I was jammed in there, and I'm starting to get anxious. I don't like this at all, right? Um, and everyone, you could just feel the, the energy in the crowd that's kind of nervous as everything is, is gridlocked there. And finally, this, this lady from behind, um, she was a stout lady, that's what I'll say, right? Um, she says to me, she called me son, she says, son, why don't you move? I said, ma'am, I can't move, there's nothing I can do. She says, follow me. And everything short of throwing elbows, this lady starts to clear a path through the crowd. And I knew in that moment I had to follow her. I was not going to get off her tail. I was going to follow her right out of there. And that's exactly what I did. Thank God for that woman. But in this story, these people are experiencing gridlock. And there's no woman there to throw some elbows and to clear the crowd and to get their friend in to see Jesus. And so for these four men, they could have decided, you know what, this is the end of our adventure, right? It's been cool. We carried a friend across town. We made every effort to get him into Jesus. But no, these friends were plan B people. Not only plan B people, I would call them plan Z people, right? They decided we're not going to stop here. We're going to improvise, try to figure this thing out. And I like to imagine that these were the type of friends that were making light of this situation in the sense that they were joking with their buddy who was paralyzed. Hey, we didn't carry you across town just to carry you back. We're getting you an audience with Jesus. You're walking home tonight. But regardless of what their banter was like, the decision that they made in this moment showed that they had desperation. James Martin, in his book, um, A Pilgrimage, Jesus, A Pilgrimage, says, the man's desperate condition is made clear by Mark. He would have been uh, doubly desperate. Not only could he not walk, or conceivably even more, um, but his lameness might have been considered by some to be the result of his sin. So this man is doubly desperate. And this morning, I want you to think about, in your life, times where you may have experienced the desperation that man felt on that mat. And I want to show you a clip this morning. This clip is by a person named Brene Brown. She is a professor, and she has a background in social work. And what she's 
she's known for a lot of things, but one thing that she's known for is she uh, did a TED Talk, um, which um, most people would be aware of what they are, where you're able to present ideas that are, can change the world. And she did a TED Talk on vulnerability. And in my circles that I run with, that's a 13-letter curse word, right? This idea of vulnerability. But she got 35 million people to click on that and plug into that idea of what vulnerability would look like in their life. So obviously this person is striking a, a nerve in our culture um, in a good way. And so I'd like you to take a look at this clip. She was asked about desperate need. And I think you'll see how that relates to the story that we're looking at here. What's obvious is God and what's beautiful. What's more meaningful is God and what's broken and hurting. What's lonely and what's scared. That's where, that's where God can be really meaningful. Um, so there's a story in the book about a homeless guy um, playing the piano at Methodist Hospital. And I think it was the whole story is about my struggle to look at why I was, I, I was challenged by a priest about looking homeless people in the eye. And I'm really good, you know, social worker, I always got the power bars and the Gatorade and handing things out the window and like, um, but I really did struggle sometimes when I pull up to a corner just really looking them in the eye. Um, and so the story is about why I was doing that. And what I realized was that what the thing that I couldn't look in the eye was human need. I couldn't look human need in the eye because I was disgusted by my own need. My own desperate, uncivilized need for other people and help. And so for me, um, God is not just in giving. God is also present in desperate need. And when we turn away from need, even our own, that's ungodly. Um, and being a good person of faith is not just about giving. It's also about receiving. And that's hard for me because I put a lot of value, and I think people have always put a lot of value on me as being a giver, a taker, you know, someone who takes care, a caregiver, the oldest of four, you know, the person that ran the group in graduate school, the per you know. And so God is in desperate need as much as generous giving. That's good news. That's good news. Maybe that is the good news. That's good news. God is just as much in desperate need as he is in what is beautiful. I'm like Brene Brown. I struggle to look my own human need in the eye. And I think she's on to something that when we can't look our own desperate need in the eye, it's hard for us to look others' desperate need in the eye. So I want to ask you this morning, have you ever been paralyzed and in a place of desperate need. I haven't known physical paralysis like this man, 
But I'll tell you what I have known, and these are the things that have paralyzed me in life. I have known deep and profound depression. I have known unspeakable grief when losing those close to me. I know the debilitating insanity of addiction. I know the suffocating doubts that undermine belief. I know the crippling impasses in key relationships with coworkers and friends. And I know fear when it feels like a straitjacket in your life. My experience is that healing begins when the light breaks through and the roof when the light breaks through the roof of our lives. But like the crippling man in our story, we need someone else to carry us there because we're powerless on our own. And that's why I've always been drawn to this story, to this story of these four friends, because it has been my experience that when I needed it most, when I was going through some of those things that I just mentioned, I had those friends who picked up my mat and carried me through that day where I just needed to get through that day. And I don't know much about the pearly gates, and I don't know if Peter's there, but if Peter's there at the pearly gates, when I'm about to go through, I think that what I need to say to Peter is that I can't go until I know that certain men get to go first. Yeah, Jim, he's got to go first. He carried me. And Joe, God knows that guy needs to go before I do. And Mark and Heath, these men, they've got to go before me because I know that I wouldn't be there I'm not just making that. I would not be there if it was not for these men in my life who have carried me when I was powerless and my powerlessness did not permit me to go any farther. And what I have noticed about those who have carried me to God is that my desperate need became our desperate need. That's the shift that gets us from the ground floor and back of the crowd saying, we tried, let's just go home, to saying, let's find out how we're going to solve this. How can we get our friend to Jesus and improvising? It has to be that kind of shift from this is just my desperate need to no, 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 my friend's desperate need is our desperate need. And I think you see that in this story. I think when these four men, if they were interviewed by the local news like about this as word spread, I don't think they said to them, the guy was desperate. He was desperate. I think what they said is, we were desperate. And that's what took us to the roof. So what is it that allows his desperate need to become our desperate need. Hebrews 
13, verses 1 to 4. Every time I read this, I think this is the kind of love that gets somebody from the ground floor behind the crowd to the roof. Listen to what it says. It says, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some of you who have done this have entertained angels without even realizing it. Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your body. As if you felt their pain in your body. That's how his desperate need becomes our desperate need. When you feel as if it were your own body. These four men felt the pain of their friend as if it was their own body. And that's why they couldn't and wouldn't settle for just calling it a day. Now there are many ways we can go to the roof for someone else. And one story that I wanted to tell um, in a community where Suzanne and I went to church. Um, this story came out. It's a, it's, it's a cool story, um, at least to me. Um, Dwayne and Marilyn's son uh, got very sick. And Marilyn shared the news, um, shared that when she received the news and carried the weight of her son's diagnosis, she felt paralyzed. And she got a call that morning as word got out, and her aunts, Aunt Dorothy and Aunt Anna, called. And they said this to her. They said, you don't need to pray because we're praying for you. And they had gone, because of the hardships that they had gone through in life, they knew what it was like to receive news that you don't know what to do with. And you know how hard it is to even pray a prayer to God in that kind of uncertainty. And so they just wanted to take the weight off of Marilyn and say, don't even worry about prayer, because we're going to pray for you as if that was our son. You don't need to pray, because we're going to pray on your behalf. The same way and with the same fervent praying that you would pray for him. And over time, you know, they saw God begin to, to touch and to heal Robert's life. Um, and they became those kind of friends for Maryland that were willing to not just stay on the ground floor, but to go to the roof for their friend because they felt the pain of their friend in their own bodies. And it's this kind of faith that God Jesus' attention. If you look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5, it says that Jesus was impressed by what? Anybody have that in front of them? He was impressed by their faith. Not his faith, not the man on the stretcher, but their faith. This small community of people that had formed to go and to see their friend meet Jesus. And I think I've always been drawn to that because I know when I look at my own faith, my own faith seems pretty small, pretty shallow at times. But to think about when I get around other people that I know have strong faith, that Jesus sees and looks at the collective faith and says, that gets my attention right there. God, free me to have more of that kind of love because my love often stays on the ground floor 
And I oftentimes just say, find myself saying, well, we tried. We gave it our best. But I want to have that kind of love that might go to the roof for a friend. So uh, my second point here, what happens when the roof is just a roof? Roofs in this story represent the conventions of the day, the norms and the boundaries, the way we prioritize what's most important. They give structure to our lives and they provide some guardrails. And I'm a person that really likes guardrails. But the longer I live, the more I notice that God seems to be pleased to peel back the curtain a little bit whenever those boundaries, those conventions are pushed aside. Jesus seems to be the one who in his own life removed the shingles from the roof, so to speak. He did things that everyone said in his day, we just just don't do that. Um, And a a good example of this for me, is, is the woman at the well, right? You could imagine either his disciples or people in, his, in this area saying, Jesus, you're a man, she's a woman, we just don't do that. She's a Samaritan, you're a Jew, we just don't do that. But Jesus seemed like the one who was willing to say, I'm going to take my chances on this one. And because of that, we're still telling that story today, Right? You know when their faith, this faith that we talked about, T-H-E-I-R, their faith, the faith of these four convention-bending friends, you know when you have that kind of faith, when you look at the roof and you say, dude, it's a roof. But the people who have the convention-bending faith who are willing to push the shingles aside say, dude, it's just a roof. And there's a big difference between those two kind of people. There's Two types of people. Those are the type of people, the convention-bending people are the ones that say, do you mean that the only thing that's keeping this person from getting healed are those shingles? Consider it done. During last last fall, it was my first experience of Fall Fest here. Uh, Is that what you call it? Fall Fest? Yeah. At GPC. And I was really impressed. I was walking around. I saw people from all different walks of life. They're enjoying the festivities that this community was putting on. And I was outside hanging out. Later I went and I had to track down my kids who were inside. And um, as I left the parking lot, came into the church, um, you have to know this about me, right? I'm a, I'm a bit of a neat freak, right? And I used not only that, but I used to have a job where it was my responsibility as operations director at a college to make sure that there were clean carpets at the college. And as I leave the parking lot, I come inside. I'm I'm overwhelmed by all the delight in seeing this community blessing other people. And then I have this moment of, what is ground into the carpet over there? (laughs) Oh my goodness, whoa, this, this is getting out of hand. This is out of control. And I'm living with that tension between, like, man, we want to be a blessing to the community, but, man, things are getting out of hand in this church. And I left the church, and I went out, and I find myself talking to Heidi Kunkel. <laughs> and, and I'm expecting, Heidi looks after the church here, and I'm expecting she's going to be bent, right, about the st- you know, status of the church right now. And I don't remember exactly what Heidi said to me, but it was kind of this 
response that was like, Seth, don't you know it's just the carpet? Don't you know that's, it's just the roof? And not, that, that wasn't just with Heidi. That was with anyone that I met here. And I was like, I remember leaving there just thinking to myself, I don't know what that is, but I want that, more of that spirit. I want more of that kind of attitude that says, is that the only thing that keeps this person from knowing the love of Christ? Consider it done. It's just a carpet. And so that need freak in me, you know, God begins to just start saying, Seth, take a look at the things that you prioritize. Because in this story, we saw some people that were able to bring healing to their friends because they just said, remember, it's just the roof. It should be noted in this story as well that Jesus shared that kind of sentiment that we saw in Heidi and we, I saw in other people here at GPC. For him, it was just the roof, and there's a lot of scholars that actually believe that this was his home. Not just he's hanging out with somebody else, but this was actually his house that they're cutting a hole through. And so it's interesting, as I look at Jesus and his attitude, I reflect on how I tend to be. And to be honest, I, when I was growing up as a kid, I never liked this story because there was a hole in the roof. It was an open-ended, literally an open-ended story. I'm thinking to myself, what happened to that house? Like, did the rain fall? Did the house get ruined? Like, I'm having all of these thoughts about this. You know, did they have to call the, the insurance adjuster? You know, to get this thing fixed? Like, I mean, I just imagine someone having to call, uh, Claire, you're never going to believe what just happened. Not sure if this one's covered under the policy. I can imagine all the insurance uh, policies needing to be rewritten to exclude damages done when the traveling preacher comes to your house. What's that farmer's insurance slogan? We know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. I can imagine that kind of ad going around Capernaum. Never saw that one coming. But what's interesting is that Jesus was not concerned about the status of the roof. He was impressed, the scriptures say, by their faith. The faith that went to the roof to figure out a way to get an audience for their friend. My third and final consideration this morning from this story. What happens when the light breaks through the roof of our lives? There's much that could be said about what Jesus does here. And I just, want to make a, I just want to make a brief point before we turn towards home. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth when this man is lowered from the ceiling, is on the ground, I imagine Jesus kneeling next to him. The first thing that comes out of his mouth reveals what Jesus saw in this man's eyes and what he assumed about the human condition and what's most important. The first thing out of his mouth was, my child your sins are forgiven. Jesus wasn't afraid to look this man's human need in the eye, as we heard from Brene Brown, right? He wasn't afraid of that. He knelt, I imagine him kneeling on the ground, looking this man in the eye, and wanting him to know that his sins were forgiven. 
He wanted him to know that no matter what, and this is, I think he said this for the entire crowd, not just for this man. He wanted the entire crowd to know that whatever they thought about this man's physical condition, that the condition of his soul was even more important. Author and teacher James Martin writes, as if Jesus is saying to the crowd, you think a person's physical infirmities are bad, sin is even worse. Therefore, I I forgive whatever sins you have committed. I don't know what Jesus saw in this man's eyes. Perhaps shame. Maybe he felt heavy guilt. Maybe he was bitter with resentment from what had happened to cause his physical disability. Maybe all there was was self-hatred because whatever had happened was his own fault and he could not point the finger at anyone else but himself. I don't know what was there, but all I know is that Jesus was most concerned. The first words out of his mouth were, my son, your sins are forgiven. And I think that Jesus knew that if he had simply said, my son, get up, take up your mat and go home, and that was the first thing out of his mouth, that this man may have rose to his feet, but he would not have leapt for joy. Jesus knew that if he simply healed him physically, he may have just, he left the building and walked out, but he may not have run home to start anew with his family. It was those two things together that allowed him both to jump up for joy and to run home to his family. Jesus wanted this man to know before anything else, whatever you think, is keeping you from the love of God today, it is no longer there. You are forgiven. Whatever it is that you think puts you outside of the boundaries of grace, that simply is not true. And I don't know about you, but I need to hear that weekly, if not daily, because I, like that man, am more often than not carrying that guilt, carrying that shame, carrying that self-hatred, whatever it is, with me, and believing that I cannot be forgiven. I want you to turn this morning to Ephesians 5, chapter 5. I just want to look at that real quick as we close. And as I read this, I want you to think about the hole in the roof, the light getting in, and what happens when someone is willing to unroof the roof and let the light into your life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. That is why it said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ 
will give you light. Christ will give you light. I know for me, I need to hear those words. And I need to hear them early. I need to hear them often. That God in Christ has forgiven me. He's forgiven you. I need to be good at, as Brene Brown said, not just giving. I'm really good at that. I've gone to church my whole life. I've, I've gotten good at that, but I'm not good at all at, at receiving. And I think that's true, that God meets us just as much in the beautiful things as he does in our desperate need. And so when I'm willing to go there and receive his forgiveness, that's when the light gets in, and that's when the healing begins in my life. So I want to leave you with this. I just want you to take this story with you. I think that's why the stories are there in the Gospels. Take this story with you this week. Think on it. Pray through it. Imagine Surely there's a lot more that could be brought out of this than what I've shared this morning. But these three questions, where does life have me paralyzed? Who will I go to the roof for? And maybe make, up, make a list of those people. Who are the people you're willing to go to the roof for in the same way that these guys did in this story? And then lastly, what area of my life do I need to hear? My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. We talked about Jesus' lovely face in this song. Can you imagine him looking at you, kneeling next to you, and saying those words to you? Because I think he wants to say them to you. I think he wants you to hear them and to receive them. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you this morning for Jesus Christ, Son of God, the one who has authority on heaven and earth, to forgive our sins, to lift the, the burdens that we carry and to touch our lives. I want to thank you for the people that have carried us in life. I don't think any of us would be here without those who, whose faith went to the roof for us. And so this morning, I just pray your blessing upon each person that they might see the face of Jesus this week and know how much love grace and forgiveness are in his eyes. And that because of that, we can, like this man, we can leap for joy. Um, as we sing this song, Lord, hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. I pray that that truth uh, would just surround us and go with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.